You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. It is such a blessing to have almost as many kids as we have adults. I think we're pretty much just emptied. That's okay, though. They're going to go learn about Jesus and... Uh, I think they're preparing something special for faith promise for us. And so we will look forward to that in the coming next week, I believe. So, um, if you guys have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we are in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 today. I too much coffee and my hand is just shaking. You're going to have to bear with me. I think I got the caffeine jitters this morning. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been looking at what it means to rethink the church. Um, to get out of the stereotypical, we come, we worship, four white walls and pews or chairs, and then we go, and that's the end of church. We want to rethink what the biblical definition of church is. And so we've looked at the Holy Spirit and how that is the complete foundation for the church, that without the Holy Spirit, nothing we do amounts to anything. We are just a group of people that gather together and sing meaningless songs and read meaningless words if we do not have the Holy Spirit in us. And if we have the Holy Spirit in us, then we know from last week that the Holy Spirit gives us power to be a witness. And to be a witness is simply this, that you tell your story, which was your life before Jesus, then how you met Jesus, and then your life after Jesus. A simple two-minute version of your story. Did any of you practice the two-minute version of your story this past week? Yeah? Okay. One hand. Gold star for you. Gold star. Go ahead and practice that this week. It's something you are going to want to have in your pocket for um, future reference, your story in a two-minute version, what your life was like before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and what your life has been like since you met Jesus. And it does not need to be this, um, you think that your testimony needs to be like this great thing, like I was a horrible individual and then Jesus changed me and now life is happy and I'm rich. Okay, that's not what all testimonies look like, nor should they. Sometimes you were raised in the church and you think you don't have a testimony because you were raised in the church and you never did anything bad and you never, you know, you were just the good kid who always loved Jesus. And maybe that's your testimony. Maybe God has been so faithful to you your whole life that you can say, I can trust in him because of his faithfulness. He kept me from certain things. So don't be ashamed of your testimony, whether it's really crazy or not so crazy. It's the testimony that God has given you. So up to this point, we've looked at kind of the broad perspective that um, the Holy Spirit is the power of the church and that as believers, we're called to witness. Well, today we're going to kind of zoom in about two people, three people in the scriptures and look at how this works in real life. What does it look like when you believe in Jesus and you actually witness? What does it look like when your life is changed dramatically by Jesus? And because of that, what happens if someone persecutes you because you love Jesus and you are witnessing. And this morning we're going to look at a story about some disciples who shared Jesus, um, a crippled man who received Jesus, and then some religious leaders of the day who didn't like Jesus. And perhaps this morning you're going to find yourself in one of these people. You're either going to find yourself in the disciples this morning, sharing Jesus boldly. You're going to find yourself as the cripple this morning, someone who just, you need Jesus in one way, shape, or form. You are spiritually crippled. You need the healing power of Jesus. Or you might find yourself in the persecutor side, the person who doesn't like Jesus, the person who maybe you're not out there persecuting the church, but maybe you're the one that's not sharing because you are ashamed of Jesus 
or you don't believe in what he's done for you. So this morning, flip to Acts chapter 3, and we're going to read the story that we saw so eloquently displayed in um, flannel graph version. Um, Verses 1 through 7, we're just going to kind of take this chunk by chunk this morning. Verses 1 through 7, read this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at about the ninth hour, which was the hour of prayer. It's in the morning. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried, and they used to set him down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called the Beautiful Gate, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began to ask them to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed their gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said this, I don't possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. So we're going to stop there and unpack that for a moment, because you might read through this section of Scripture multiple times and not realize all of the stuff that's crammed into seven verses here. So first and foremost, we need to recognize that, uh-oh, I did the wrong, I did the wrong button. We'll fix this and get back to the slides here. There was a crippled man in this story. There we go. A crippled man. We've all seen people who are um, crippled in one way, shape, or form, emotionally, physically, spiritually, okay? There is someone in this day and age that was crippled from birth. Forty years, Scripture says, he couldn't walk, disabled from the waist down, his Bones were not formed right. His muscles were not formed right. He could not walk. Now, this meant that um, he couldn't pay for food. He didn't have a family because he couldn't support a wife. He never got married. He lived 40 years with a debilitating disability that was not just physical, but it was social, too, because he was an outcast. He wasn't able to partake in normal society like other people could. People had to carry him to his job, which was sitting outside the temple gate begging for coins. And this act was beneficial to the beggar because he could pay for his foods and his needs that he had, as meager as they were, he received coins as he sat outside the gate. Now, this is the temple, um, modern-day version of the temple, um, but this is what it would look like. And there was a gate, uh, right button here. There was a main gate right here. Um, And scholars debate which gate is called the beautiful gate. We're just going to say it's this gate because all you need to know is there was a gate that people went in, okay? So people went in a gate right here in the front of the temple. And so this beggar was walked up to the gate and sat down right at the front entrance. Anyone going to prayer at this time of day would walk past this beggar and countless other beggars that were there. They were just lined up to the entrance of the, of the gate. So if you were going, it's like if you come to church Sunday morning and 10 to 12 beggars, cripples, homeless people, whatever, they were sitting right outside the door and socially it was acceptable for them to ask for money from you. This is how it was in the day. And it was acceptable because this was the only way they could earn a living, to beg money off of people going to church. But it was also culturally acceptable and beneficial for the Jewish people who were going to worship to give their alms to the people who were begging. Because the Jewish worshipers believed that they would gain merit or favor from God if they gave money to the crippled people. So it really worked for them. They had extra coins in their pocket because, hey... Ta-da! And now God loves me even more because I could give to the crippled person. So it was a win-win situation, okay? 
Crippled person goes, he begs for money. Jewish people go, they give the money, they get more favor with God. Crippled person gets to buy a sandwich at the end of the day. But basically, this crippled man had absolutely nothing, apart from whatever was put in his cup. He had nothing. He had no family. He had no coins. He might have not had a home. He only had what the people would give him. And so Peter and John, two disciples, they were going up to the temple to pray at the ninth hour in the morning. It was early evening. It was the evening sacrifice. It was the time that they would go, that everyone who was Jewish would go. Everyone was going to the temple at this time of day for evening sacrifice. Um, Now, they approached the gate. They saw the crippled beggar who had nothing. Why this beggar over any other beggar? I don't know. Scripture just tells us about this one. Um, And the beggar asked for a coin. Have you guys ever been asked for coins from someone who's homeless on the street? Um, Sometimes they make eye contact with you, right? Sometimes they don't make eye contact with you. Having lived in Southern California, generally speaking, and I'm making a generalization, so understand that here. Generally speaking, the ones who would make eye contact with me were the quote-unquote professional um, beggars. The ones who didn't, they carried cell phones and they wore nice clothing and they didn't need to be, but you could earn a good living um, on some street corners in Southern California. The ones who made eye contact with me, they had a sense of confidence about themselves because they knew they were okay. The ones who didn't make eye contact with me, they just kind of had given up hope on all things and they just you know, stuck their cup out in hopes that maybe someone might put something in. And I had more compassion on the ones that didn't look at me than the ones who did because I think they were in a more needy position. Anyway, Scripture says that um, Peter had to tell this man to look at him because this man wasn't even looking up. He had just given up hope and he just, just like this, anyone who'd walk by and he had his cup or his hand out waiting, hopefully that maybe someone might have compassion on him. So Peter had to say this, look at us. So the beggar man looks up, tentatively looks up at Peter and John. And Now, can you imagine this? When he had the gaze of the beggar, you know, look at us, man, look at us. And the beggar's like, then what does Peter say? I don't have any coins. Can you imagine? Like, let's put this into reality for you, okay? Um, you see a homeless person who is asking for coins. They're downtrodden. They're not even looking at you. They're dressed in rags. They smell bad. They are visibly crippled. And you walk up to that person and you say, hey, crippled person, look at me. And then they look at you in hopes that you're going to give them something. And you're like, sorry, I love no coins. That's just the rudest thing you could ever do. Isn't that the worst thing you could possibly do? And here the disciples are like, hey, look at us. Don't have any coins. And what the beggar felt in that moment. Because you imagine he's been picked on his whole life. You imagine the people have made fun of him. You imagine the people have gained his attention and trust for moments just so that they could crush him. And here it seems like the disciples are doing the same thing. And there is a, I might have told this story before, I'm not sure. When I lived in California, we lived on this really busy intersection by a freeway. Um, And pretty much you pull out of our housing development and there was the freeway and Um, on the entrance ramp, there was a man who would stand there and and beg. He was homeless, and I'd see him daily. He was not one of the professional um, folks who had a job and a home somewhere else. He was a guy who really desperately needed. Um, I think he was a vet, just based on the conversations that I had with him. He was down and out on his luck. 
Anyway, people would stop at the intersection um, when the light would stop them coming off the freeway, and they'd give him change and dollars and, you know, food coupons to McDonald's on the corner there. And one day, I was behind a car um, that was at the front of the intersection. I was behind him, and the baker was right here. And, um, he rolled his window down and waved some dollar bills out to this guy. Um, nothing really seemed weird about it at the time because, you know, people handed this guy money all the time. Um, well, the homeless man approached to grab the dollar bills that were being waved from the car, and when he got close enough to the car, the dollar bills were retracted back inside. And there was this moment where there was a conversation going on, and I obviously couldn't hear what they were saying. But after a moment, the homeless man stepped back uh, from the car and did this jig. It was a, kind of the most saddest dance I've ever seen. He was a crippled man. Not, uh, he could walk, but he had a limp. But he had to do this dance for these dollar bills, right? He was probably told, listen, I'll give you... I don't know what, if you humiliate yourself in front of everyone on this street corner. And the man needed the money desperately, obviously, because he was willing to do that. The homeless man stepped back to the car and held his hand out for the money, and I saw coins get dropped. Light changed, and the car drove off. And um, i got to tell you, that just got, you know, right in your heart. Um, And I couldn't stop because of the traffic, and it just broke my heart that that man was treated in such a way Can you imagine what that crippled beggar felt like in that street corner there? Can you imagine what the man felt like in the Bible when, like, look at us, and I got no coins. I've got no coins for you, crippled man. I can't buy a sandwich for you today. Humiliated. Maybe angry. Maybe it was a public spectacle. At the busiest time of temple sacrifice, he was being made fun of, or so he thought. But then we read this in verses 7 through 10. It says this. And then uh, seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. See, Peter said this, I don't have coin, but what I do have I will give you. It's not just that he was leaving this man high and dry. He said, look at us. Look up at me. I need eye contact with you for a moment. I don't have any coins, but what I do have I am going to give you. He had something that was a little more valuable to put in the man's cup than coins. Um, when I lived in California, man, I've got a lot of examples from there. There's just a lot that was uh, going on in California. I went and served on Skid Row for a couple months. Sunday nights, there was a church that would go out on Skid Row, California, downtown L.A. Really terrifying, actually, um, place to go after dark. Um, there were... Um, street blocks, about two or three blocks, that they would line up, the homeless and the, you know, everything. They would just line up for two or three blocks deep uh, because they knew for 20 years this church was coming and feeding them. They'd set up, the church would set up tables upon tables, and there'd be the soup and the salad and the dessert table and then the um, uh, shoe table and the coat table. At the very end, there's a sock table. And what I learned was socks were like gold on the streets of L.A. because... You couldn't wash your socks, and they'd get gross after a while, and they'd get foot infections because of the, you know, the fungals. I don't know. It was gross. Anyway, um, socks, new socks, clean socks were like just gold for the folks that we were ministering to. So it was my first night ministering on Skid Row. It was 10 o'clock, and um, it was pitch black, and there were so many people. So I was serving the soup, and then we ran out of soup. And I was like, okay. So I walked down the line. And I started handing out desserts. And then we ran out of desserts. 
So I walked down to the shoes. I'm handing out shoes. We ran out of shoes, and we walked down to the coats and handed out coats. We ran out of coats. And finally, I got down to the socks, and I handed out the socks, and then people were moving and closing the tables down. And I walked back to the, you know, the big truck that we'd brought, and I was putting stuff away. And the guy who ran the ministry said this, listen, um, I know you've handed out everything that we had to hand out uh, that was tangible, but you need to know that we didn't come here to give them socks and soup. That's how we get them to us. We came here to give them Jesus. And so now is when you start to hand out what we really gave. Now you get to go sit with them while they eat. You get to go help take their socks off and put their new socks on if that's what's necessary. Now you get to go give Jesus by loving these people. And it really stopped me in my tracks because um, when my hands were empty, I felt like I had nothing left to give. You know, um, I'd gone to give soup, but in reality... The soup was just the tool. I'd really come to give Jesus. That's what the ministry was about. It wasn't about soup. It was about Jesus. And if I didn't give Jesus and I only gave soup, who cares, right? You can get soup in a lot of places. You can only get Jesus from people who believe in Jesus. And so he kind of shoved me to the front lines. And I got to meet a few people that night that I met consecutively for the next couple nights or next couple weeks. Um, Got to develop a relationship with these folks and talk to them about Christ. And it was really great. That was the ministry. That was what I had to offer When my pockets were empty, I actually had more to give than when my pockets were full with tangible things. Um, Peter and John, in this scripture, they knew that. They knew that what they had to give was more valuable than the few coins they could have plunked in in uh, in the cup of the man who had nothing. They told the man this, what I will have, or what I have, I will give you. What I have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Now, the beggar, he just wanted a sandwich. But what the disciple said is, listen, I'll give you the ability to lead life to the fullest. Stand up and walk. You know, in that day, someone's name was used not just for identification. It wasn't, hey, Bob, hey, Sam. Someone's name was used to denote their character, their nature, who they were. You were named because your parents wanted you to exhibit certain characteristics Um, Abraham, father of many. That's what his name means. That's kind of suiting because he became the father of nations. Um, Reuben means, behold, a son, because Reuben was the firstborn. So he was held by his father, and he was like, what should I name? Behold, a son. So they named him Reuben. Moses means taken out or drawn out because he was drawn out of the the river. He also uh, took the people out of slavery. He drew the people out of slavery. Jesus Christ means Savior, Messiah, Anointed One. So, when John and Peter were telling this man to stand in the name of Jesus, we give you Jesus, they simply stated his name. They simply stated Jesus. The name has authority. Walk. And it's not that Jesus healed him, simply Jesus healed him physically and saved him spiritually. He went from having nothing, no future, no hope, no job, no family, nothing, to having salvation, a full heart, joy, an eternal future, and he could walk, he could get a job, he could have a family. This was not just an earthly future. This was an eternal future because of Jesus. That is a much better return on investment than coins that get a sandwich at the end of the day. He was loved from the inside out in that moment. The man who couldn't even look up at people when they walked by could suddenly look up at people eye to eye because he was standing 
eye to eye with people, unlike coins, which you can give away and you no longer have, when you give Jesus away in the name of ministry, you have Jesus even more to give away. And so we have this moment in time that Scripture shows us that this bigger man suddenly standing was clinging to Peter and John, clinging probably because he was like, wow, I'm not even sure if this is going to last. Okay, I just, just in case my legs give out again, I want to be sure I'm holding on to someone. But also, these were the people that did something great for him. He was like attached at the hip. He wanted to know more. He's like, I'm with you guys now. What's going on? You're my best buddies. Let's hang out. Um, so while he was clinging to Peter and John, all of the people ran together at them. Can you imagine a mob of people just like this beggar man that people had seen for 40 years was suddenly standing and talking and jumping for joy? And that created quite a commotion in Solomon's portico, this area where they were gathering to worship. And Peter saw this gathering and said to the people, listen, why are you amazed? Why are you amazed or gaze at us as if we made him walk? We did absolutely nothing. Jesus made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of our fathers of Isaac, he is the one that made him walk. He is the one that you disowned. He is the one that you nailed to the cross. He is the one that you put to death. He is the one that rose from the dead. He is the one that gives you eternal life. He is the one that healed the beggar. Why do you look at us? You should look at Jesus. So there was this huge commotion, and Peter is preaching this great sermon under the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, thousands of people got saved. See, the commotion caused so much attention that the temple guards were called in to maintain peace. Um, they had to call in the army reserve, as it were, of the day, the tanks and the battalions and the army folks, because there was such a commotion, such a, a sudden movement of the Holy Spirit because of one man's healing and the work of the power of God in this church that thousands of people were rioting, saying, Jesus is great. We love Jesus. We want to know Jesus. Let's get saved in the name of Jesus. I want to be healed by Jesus. I imagine other beggars were like, can I be next in line? People who had broken hearts were like, who oh, put me in line. I need this Jesus too. And so thousands upon thousands of people are being saved. Scripture says 5,000 men got saved that morning because of the healing of one man. And if you add the women and the children, the church grew to like by like 10,000 people that day, roughly, give or take, in one day. Now, Pentecost was great. That was like 3,000 men and maybe 6,000 people total. But this was bigger than that. This was everyone in the Jewish nation came to worship, and a good chunk of them got saved. The leaders in the temple, though, the religious and the political ones, the ones that called in the Army National Guard, they were really frustrated. They were really angry because this upset how worship should be. Worship is dignified and solemn and we do it this way and then there's this and then this and then we cut the bull in half and then we all chant in the same way and then we all stand at the same time and this dancing thing that's happening over here, not our plan. We're angry about this kind of worship. It is not how we do things in the temple. We are holy. That's what they were saying. And they were upset, so they called in the, uh, the guard. They were not just upset about the dancing and the exuberance. They were upset that Peter said this, Why are you amazed? 
The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the one whom you delivered and disowned. He's the one who you crucified. He's the one who was raised from the dead. He's the one who strengthened this man. He's the man who gives faith, and we should have faith in him. The religious leaders were upset about that, too, because they didn't believe in Jesus. They were called the Sadducees. It was a group of religious and political leaders of the day termed the Sadducees. You've heard of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And uh, the Sadducees were um, not people who believed in the resurrection from the dead. They were sad, you see, because they had no hope for life after death. That's why they're called the sad, you see. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, a little, little past their humor there. You'll remember it, though, why the Sadducees were sad. Because of these disruptions and on the heels of this great miracle and undeniable healing... Peter, John, and this no longer crippled man were taken into custody. Can you imagine? Like you've been crippled your whole life. You get healed, you get Jesus, you're like, woohoo, 10,000 people get saved. It's like the great revival of the day. And then the guards break through and arrest you and the two people who brought you to this eternal life. While in custody, the rulers asked, by what name or power did you do this? And Peter responded this in chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Let it be known. He's on trial, by the way. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven or earth that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, he's saying that while he's under arrest. He's saying that while he is in custody, detained and threatened and quite possibly facing floggings, beatings, jail time, execution. He said, Jesus, 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 Jesus. It didn't matter what happened in his life. He gave Jesus when he had nothing in his pockets to give. He had Jesus when he was arrested. Jesus, simply Jesus. It's all the disciples needed. Jesus. And it sounds like the Sunday school answer, right? Who saved you? Jesus. Who loves you? Jesus. Who's with you always? Jesus. Who can make your, your frown turn into a smile? Jesus. These are the Sunday school answers. But there's a reason it's the Sunday school answer. Because in Sunday school, we like to teach people about Jesus. That's, you guys are smart. You're right with me this morning. Jesus is why we are here. Jesus is what we have to give. Jesus is who changed our life. Jesus is who changes other people's lives that we encounter. And if we don't know what our two-minute testimony is, then when we meet that beggar on the corner, we can't say, look at me, I have something to give to you that's more valuable than coins. We need to be able to say, I have something that's bigger than me. I have something that's bigger than my pocketbook. If I cut you a check for a million dollars and was good for it, that would do you no good. In fact, it would harm you because you would trust in money for your salvation instead of Jesus. What we need to be able to do is say, if I am broke, if I am that beggar, that cripple on the side of the street, and someone gives me coins, I want to be able to turn to that person and say, 
Thank you for putting food in my mouth today and for providing. I know that God used you. Can I share with you something that is more important to me than those coins you put in my cup? We need to be able to say, I have Jesus no matter what. And here they are, arrested. They broke no laws, but they were arrested. They testified about Jesus, and then because the religious leaders of the day couldn't find anything wrong with what they'd done other than being a disruption and being a little more Pentecostal than Jewish, um, they were released. And rather than gripe about the bad day they'd had, because they were put in jail and beaten and detained, rather than gripe and complain about the lost wages or the sore wrists or the unfairness of their situation, Scripture says they praised God for what happened. They praised God for the opportunity to witness. They praised God for the healing of the crippled man. They praised God that they were arrested so that they could testify to the religious leaders of the day. How often do you get to tell the religious leaders? And the, I mean, the, it would be like going and getting a trial in front of the President of the United States or a leader of a country that is not Christian. And they say, why do you do what you do? And you get to say, Jesus. They got to see the people who lead the people and tell them about Jesus. They praised God for those opportunities. And then they went back to their church, their fellowship of like-minded believers. And together they praised God that they were arrested. Together they praised God that they got to testify of Jesus to great numbers of people. Together they prayed, they prayed, and they prayed. And here's what happened when they prayed. At the end of um, chapter 4 here, after they'd been arrested and released and gone back to uh, their people, they say this, And now, Lord, take note of these people's threats, because they'd been threatened not to do this again. Grant that your bondservants might speak your word with all confidence, because they were told, don't speak like this or the punishment will be worse. Give us the boldness, God, to speak, even if we might get flogged. Give us the boldness to speak, even if it's socially awkward. Give us the boldness to say your name, even if we have nothing else to give people. Help us say your name. So when you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then when they would prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. There's a movement of the Holy Spirit again. The church is on the move. It's rethinking what it means to be the church. It's not us. It's not the coins in our pocket. It, I can't believe as a pastor, here I am going to say this. It's not what you give in the tithing plate. It's not what you give um, on the street corner. It's not what you give when you go to a soup kitchen. That's all stuff that... You give out of joy because you want to give because God has blessed you. But that's not what makes the church. What makes the church is when you go to a homeless person and say, let me buy you a sandwich and because of this opportunity, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is what you give when you want to grow in your faith. Jesus is what you give when someone else needs to grow in their faith. And when you are persecuted in your workplace, in your, in my case, in my family, when I talk to Jesus of uh, about Jesus to my grandma, she gets angry and hangs up the phone, okay? Um, and, and so when you are persecuted, wherever you go, are you the ones that say, that was really uncomfortable, I don't want to do that again? Or are you the ones that say, give me those chains again. I would gladly say the name of Jesus a million times over and be arrested and flogged and beaten and be socially awkward. Not weird, but socially awkward. 
over and over and over again so that by hope one person might be saved. By the name of Jesus, one person would receive healing. That's what we give. We give Jesus. And you'll find that when you give Jesus, you end up having more of him than you started with. It's some sort of weird math that God does, but your cup will never run out. Jesus is in you. So if you give Jesus away, it's more Jesus. And then you have more Jesus to give. And it's this divine math that God does in your spirit. So I want to ask you a question this morning before we worship. Are you, this morning, the cripple? Are you the one that you come to the church, but you don't feel like you have anything to give? You're downtrodden. Something in your life isn't going right. It's just weighing heavy on you. You're the one who's coming to receive, and you don't even know what you need to receive, but you need something. Maybe you're the cripple. That's okay. It's a good place to be this morning. Maybe you're the disciple. You're the disciple that has everything. You've got Jesus. You've got coins in your pocket. Are you using both of those in ministry? Maybe you become easily distracted from God's glory when you get opposition right after testifying about Jesus. It was difficult. And maybe you get distracted and say, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Maybe that wasn't the right way to go about it. Maybe I shouldn't talk to that person again. Or do you say, yes, and I will take that 10,000 times more. Do you pray for endurance in the face of opposition? When you are being opposed by the world and the flesh and the devil, are you the one that says, Jesus is bigger. I'll go for it. I'll take my chances with my big brother than with anything else that the world could throw at me. He's got my back. I'll go with him. I will have endurance in the face of anything. Or maybe you're the religious leaders this morning. Maybe you're the ones that believe church is done this way. Worship is done this way. Any departure of this is abnormal. And I worship in this way. I do Christian life in my workplace this way and no other way. I am holy. And maybe we should get away from the I am holy in our heart and pride and say, I am humble and Jesus is holy and I want holiness, not holy. You know, there's a difference between I'm holy and I make other people feel bad for not being holy. Um, And you know what I mean? But we see people like that and we live like that sometimes. What we want to be is we're not and Jesus is. And let me tell you about Jesus. And then holiness will happen in our hearts when we know who Jesus is and he does a work in our hearts. But we need to give Jesus first in order for any of that to happen. This week, as you experience life, who will God reveal to you you are? The cripple? The disciple? The Sadducee? You know, you are one of them. And God wants you to be a humble servant of Him with perhaps empty pockets, but very full hearts. And He wants you to help other people live in such a way that brings glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that even when our pockets are empty on the ministry front and we're out of soup and we're out of socks, and Lord, we feel like we have nothing else to give because it's awkward when we have nothing tangible to give someone who needs something tangible. Lord, we know that you have all resources at your disposal, and we know that you'll give us the boldness to speak your name which is truth and light and hope and life into those that need it. Because, yes, people need food. Yes, people need coats. Yes, people need tangible support. 
But, Father, what they need more than anything else is you. And, Lord, you've equipped us with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak boldly your name. Lord, I pray this morning that you would embolden your servant, that you would fall on us in such a way that we cause a ruckus in this city, that people would look at us and go, what is that? And we would say, that's Jesus' people loving Jesus. Want to join us? Man, join us. It's so much fun. Let me tell you about Jesus. Lord, give us the words to speak, the compassion for people who are downtrodden. Lord, give us resources above our own so that we can give tangibly and spiritually. Lord, we commit ourselves to you this week. Fill us and use us so that we can minister in your name and for your glory and for the good of this community. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to do something strange for a benediction. We're going to practice saying the name of Jesus, because I think we need to say it out loud a few times to hear it and to feel it. And as a congregation, when we say it together, I believe there's power in the name of Jesus. So we're going to say Jesus' name three times, and then we're going to go in peace and love and joy to the community who needs him. You guys ready? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Now go in peace and share him. Amen? Amen.